This is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 4. If you've been following along for the last two weeks, you know what we have in store for you here on the program this week, and that is the concluding portion of our first ever mini-series featuring esteemed ufologist and Druffle. I've already raved for the past two episodes about just how much I enjoyed this conversation with Anne Druffle and how much I respect her remarkable 50-plus year career researching UFOs. So you don't need me to slather on the hyperbole here again on the third episode of our mini-series. So let's just dive into the preview portion of the intro, and then we'll get you cooking with the final installment. We're going to be finishing up our conversation on Firestorm, Dr. James E. McDonald's fight for UFO science, We're going to be covering McDonald's goals for a national UFO monitoring system and why it seems like that project still hasn't come to fruition in the world of ufology. We're going to talk about unspoken pressures on McDonald to provide a UFO breakthrough. We're going to look at the Condon report in depth, including the Lowe memo and how McDonald was responsible for that document getting widely released, the reaction of ufology to the Condon report, and if Anne thinks the UFO field was permanently damaged by the series of events that befell it in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Amazing on-the-ground perspective there from Anne on what it was like in the world of UFO studies when the Condon report dropped. We're also going to examine the folding of NICAP from a number of different angles, what the scene was like in ufology when that went down, what the folks on the West Coast, such as Anne and her mentor, Idabel Epperson and the NICAP of Southern California had to say about the folding of the National NICAP office and what James E. McDonald thought about it since he was a huge ally of the NICAP organization. Then we're going to look at the events that led up to James E. McDonald's death, beginning with his clandestine meeting with top government officials. Very fascinating stuff there. The SST congressional hearings, which saw McDonald publicly ridiculed by a congressman. That's a heartbreaking story. Family issues that plagued McDonald towards the end of his life and his subsequent suicide, along with Anne's thoughts on what may have been behind it. Much like the previous two episodes here in the miniseries, this is a jam-packed edition of BOA Audio as we close the book on Firestorm, Dr. James E. McDonald's fight for UFO science. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Anne Druffle, you probably skipped both episodes 1 and 2 of the miniseries. I'm not quite sure why you're jumping in here on 3, but much like last week, for the sake of completion, we'll include the Anne Druffle bio here in the introduction. UFO researcher and author Anne Druffle dates her interest in the UFO question to 1945, when, as a schoolgirl, she viewed a bright yellowish object, very high, in clear blue skies over Long Beach, California. Interested in Earth mysteries of all kinds, Druffle has researched various aspects of the UFO question, 
and investigated reports of all kinds since 1957. She was one of the first investigators for NICAP, remaining with that organization from April 1957 to 1973. After NICAP was destroyed by subversive agents from the FBI and CIA, who had secretly penetrated into the higher realms of the organization, Drupal joined the mutual UFO network, MUFON, with which she is still actively associated as investigator, frequent contributor to their journals, and other official capacities. She was a U.S. consultant and regular contributor for the British research journal Flying Saucer Review through 2004. She has authored six books and numerous articles for newsstand magazines on UFOs and other Earth mysteries, and has contributed over 190 articles and columns for top UFO journals in the field. Her website is www.andruffle.com, A-N-N-D-R-U-F-F-E-L.com. Check it out. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded over the course of two days, January 24th and January 27th, 2009. And Druffle, talking about Firestorm, Dr. James E. McDonald's fight for UFO science on VOA Audio, Season 4. One of the interesting things I, I found that uh, was one of McDonald's big goals or quests, I guess you could say, probably, and you'll probably correct me if I'm wrong, uh, probably towards the latter half of his his public participation in the UFO field was this quest for a UFO monitoring system. seems like he did a lot of work and tried to pull a lot of strings to get this thing together, but it never really happened uh, to the best of my knowledge. But I guess just talk a little bit about McDonald's ideas and hopes and goals and quest for that UFO monitoring system that became a, a big a big part of his, his career as a ufologist. McDonald was a pure scientist, and he knew that unless he had scientific proof that these uh, things were around in the sky that uh, science the scientific community at large would never accept them as uh, verified and so uh, I think he tried with the some of the scientific organizations that he he uh, was members of and he, he gave talks to he gave hundreds of talks about UFOs the monitoring system would be the, the finest scientific way of proving the existence of, of these objects. Yeah. It seems like after McDonald died, that idea really, to the best of my knowledge, never really got any further. To, uh, now, you'd know better than I would. Has that UFO monitoring system ever been put in place by anybody, or is it still sort of on the drawing board or a grand idea that never really came to fruition uh, for the UFO field? Well, for the UFO field, it was a grand idea that never came to fruition, but uh, it would be wonderful if it did. But it's possible that the government has something like that. I I would think it's very, (laughs) very probable that they do but uh, they do not share the information with the civilian UFO research field or, or with the public. Yeah. Now, I know that uh, a couple of years ago, Peter Davenport put forth an idea for a passive radar system that was similar to the UFO monitoring system that McDonald wanted to do. So it's not like the idea has died out. It's just that it just can't seem to get, get together and, and uh, get going. So hopefully someday, uh, you know, a privately funded or privately organized UFO monitoring system can be put in place by uh, ufology and make use of that data. Yes. Yes. Uh, it would be entirely possible to do it if we had the funding. The funding is what is stopping us. 
isn't that the great uh, crisis of ufology? It seems uh, it's always been a problem for the field. Oh, yeah. Funding. And then later on in the book, you have a quote here. It's on page 422 in case you want to reference it, but it's uh, just a, a sort of observation on your part. It was the unspoken hope in the UFO community that McDonald's work would provide a breakthrough. Uh, do you think that pressure, that unspoken pressure uh, by the UFO community was felt by McDonald in the sense that, you know, like earlier on, we talked about how uh, without outright saying it, ufology kind of considered him a leader. Do you think that you know, do you think that was a lot to bear for him to sort of take on this big mantle of uh, unspoken leader and, and have all that pressure of, of trying to break this case open? Well, he, he never expressed uh, wanting to be a leader. All he was in his own mind was a scientist. And he, he would work with other people who were scientifically oriented and other scientists. He never thought of himself as a leader, you see. Yeah. He, he was, uh, I... I I would use the word true humility that he had. There was no pride uh, in his personality at all. But do you think that that pressure, that, that he was such a prominent ufologist and that so many people, I'm sure he knew that so many people like considered him kind of a leader and that they were hoping that he would deliver something that would be the breakthrough. Do you think that pressure got to him at some point? Well, obviously, obviously a lot of uh, factors came together at the end of his life, but do you think he felt that pressure... Uh, of being such an important figure in the field? I don't know. He, he never expressed uh, pressure to us or any negative emotions at all. His personality was such that he did not express negative emotions. Yeah. I know that he felt them in his own heart and in his own mind, but he never expressed them uh, to other people that I know of. Uh, now, uh, Dick Hall knew him probably better than any other a researcher in the field. I would say that they, you could say that there was a friendship there. There was a friendship uh, between McDonald and uh, Ida Bell Epperson, for example. Yeah. But but uh, I might suggest you interviewing uh, Richard Hall. Mm-hmm. We're working on getting that already. We're working on getting him on the show soon. Good. Thanks to your great book, actually. Uh, so, as I said earlier, you're you're, you're changing the course of uh, the direction in some aspects of this program because we'll be trying to get Dick Hall on the show soon to talk more about ufology's great history. So, that's wonderful. Thanks to you, Anne. Thanks to Firestorm. So, I hope people pick up the book and read it because uh, then they can sort of get a feel for where this show will be headed as as we keep going here through season four of, of uh, BOA Audio. Now. The next thing I wanted to talk to you about in the book is uh, you talk a lot about the 1956 Bentwaters UK UFO case. I'm not going to ask you to get into all that. But within that discussion in the book, you talk about how uh, the, the report from Blue Book indicated that there was not enough data, but it turned out that like Blue Book didn't get all the data, and it indicated that Heineck, who had put that they didn't get enough data, uh, was kind of unaware of what was really going on with Project Blue Book. And I presume that later on in his life, because I think I did read this uh, in Stan's book, that he was very upset about how he kind of found out what was really going on with Bluewick after the fact. But you'd know more about that than I would. What was Hynek's reaction in the later years to the sort of revelations that came out about Blue Book and, and how other government agencies were investigating UFOs when he presumably was under the impression that they weren't? He might not have been under the impression that other uh, agencies were not investigating. He, he might have known that they were, but never told anyone, or okay. he might have suspected it. Yeah. 
uh, I, uh, Heineck was a, a very intellectual, intelligent person. I, I would not think that he thought that Project Blue Book was the only government agency investigating UFOs, even though they claimed to be. All right, well, let's talk about one of the big uh, roadblocks or uh, stumbling blocks, or I'm trying to think of the right word here. Well, let's just talk about the devastating Condon Report uh, and the effect that it had on ufology. And, and, and the first real question I had for you about that uh, has uh, not really to do with James McDonald, but it's sort of like the congressional hearings question just now. And that was just uh, what was the mood of ufology like at the time? Like you said, everyone was really excited and everything about the congressional hearings. But we, we know from your book and from other books uh, that that leaked document, that leaked memo, kind of gave an inside glimpse of what was really going on at, at the Condon Committee. And that was circulating before the report came out. And I, and I think from, from what I read in Firestorm that, uh, that people in ufology were a little bit worried about the Condon report because they knew that it wasn't going to be a positive thing and it was kind of looming over ufology but you, you were in the field at the time you were you know you were doing the legwork you were you were doing you know you were right there in the trenches of ufo studies as the Condon committee was being put together so you'd know better than i would uh you'd know better than most people would uh, and, and certainly 90 percent of the people listening to the show right now what was the feeling like for all you guys studying ufos with this looming negative report over your heads that you knew was going to be coming out and it was going to cause a problem for a lot of people who wanted uh, more answers to the UFO enigma. We kept hoping that, that possibly it would be not as negative as uh, we uh, thought it might be because of the, um, it was called the Lowe Memo. Mm -hmm. uh, Robert Lowe was uh, an assistant to Condon. Uh, you see, uh, Early in August uh, 1966, which was shortly after the Condon uh, Committee formed and, and was working. Now, Roy, uh, Roy Craig, Dr. Roy Craig, who was on Condon's staff, found the memo. Now, now we don't know the details of how he found the memo, but uh, it was in a cabinet that was not... Um, not part of any files that could not be entered into by the staff, you see. Yeah. So when he found the memo, it was all right. He did not do anything wrong. Uh, Roy Craig did not do anything wrong, uh, quote, finding the memo. But uh, I'm sure that he had help from some of the other staff who were the objective people uh, that, that this memo existed and, and to, you know, look it up. And uh, uh, Roy Craig um, tried to contact various people in the field to tell them about the memo, to show it to them. And uh, one of the people he showed it to was uh, Jim McDonald, but uh, Jim McDonald did not know what to do about it, you see. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other people who uh, saw the memo, uh, like uh, Kehoe, uh, did not know what to do about it. They did not know how to make it public, whether or not they should make it public or whatever. But it was McDonald who had the courage to bring it out in the open and to uh, present this to the public that there was something wrong with the Condon Committee, you see. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the great things I found uh, in the book and, and found about James McDonald was that he was really the one who sort of got that thing out there. And, and sort of like we talked about earlier, he was the one who 
really was, uh, as you said, vehemently blowing the whistle on uh, the lack of real scientific investigation going on at Blue Book. I mean, this guy was instrumental in changing ufology history in so many ways. And, and, and then the low memo was just one of those instances. So uh, definitely an amazing contribution. And, and got to say, get Firestorm, folks. It's an amazing book. I can't put it over enough. Thank you. When that came out, then I suppose everybody kind of started to get pretty nervous, right? Because they were like, oh, no, this is we're, we're in for a big hit here. But like you said, they were kind of hopeful that it wouldn't turn out to be as bad as the memo suggested it could be. That, that was our only hope. But, of course, there were three. Uh, there were at least three members of Conan's staff who were totally objective and with whom we had very, very good contact. And so we knew that uh, the Conan report possibly would not be totally negative because of the objective people on the staff. Of course, Conan fired some of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Now, what was... When the Condon Report came out, it sounds like they sort of rushed it out because the National Academy of Sciences was supposed to take a look at it and approve it, and they thought that was going to take a while, but then it only took like a day or something, and then then all of a sudden it was like, boom, it was out right away. What was the reaction like to, for all you guys and for NICAP? We, we kind of know the reaction to Jim McDonald when it came out. He pretty much dove right into it and started dissecting it piece by piece to refute the whole thing. But uh, what was the reaction of, of everybody else, you know, in the field of ufology when this came out? What were you guys feeling? We were all dismayed, you see. Mm -hmm. But, of course, uh, none of us uh, seemed to have the time to read the entire report. We just thought because of the introduction that Condon had written that UFOs were of no uh, scientific value whatsoever, we sort of put it aside. But uh, MacDonald read the entire book. I think he must have been the, the first person to read the entire book. And he found that a full third of the cases, I believe there were 90 cases uh, in the Condon report, that, that at least that 30 of them were unidentified. The staff listed them unidentified. Somehow this information of unidentified cases crept into the middle of the Condon report without Condon's knowledge. And it's apparent that Condon himself did not read his own report. He only wrote the introduction, the very negative introduction. Yeah. And so there, there were still objective people on the staff, probably that Condon did not even know. Condon did not even know what they were doing. It's kind of well known, too, that uh, once the Con report came out, there was quite a negative effect on ufology. It was really sort of uh, the beginning of a, of a dry spell, I think, for UFO studies. But like I said, you'd know better than anybody uh, that we've had on the show what, what it was like at the time, you know, on the ground at the time. When, when the Con report came out down there in Southern California, did you guys see a noticeable effect on interest or... or you know, participation in UFO studies? There, there was no uh, lull in our participation. See, we, we knew that something like this was going to happen because of the low memo. Yeah. And uh, we were grateful for McDonald's going through the entire thing and discovering that there were uh, at least a third of the cases discussed in, in the book were, were actually listed as unidentified 
and these were among the very finest cases that we had studied ourselves all over the uh, all over the country and in Australia and in Europe you see so we went on we picked ourselves up and thought well that's the government and we'll go on and uh, we did now what about the people that were sort of on the fence because there's been some you know people I've had on the show who are UFO history buffs speak of you know the Condon effect and it's certainly noticeable that around that time the late 60s early 70s it was like boom 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 Condon committee blue book closes NICAP folds James McDonald dies it sounds like that period had a, a very long standing lasting effect on ufology that that it may not have still recovered from in in some ways what do you think i mean here we are 30 nearly 40 years on since uh well 40 years since the Condon report came out i think um so what do you think? Uh, what are your thoughts on, on how ufology sort of unfolded since since that difficult period there that of, of events that I just named? Well, uh, I will agree with you that there was a Condon effect. And the, uh, the funding that was coming into NICAP fell off dramatically. Dick Hall will uh, blame the, this. On the, on the fall of NICAP, I blame it on other things in, my, in the book. Hypothetically, uh, I, I blame it on uh, interference by hidden CIA and FBI agents uh, in in on the NICAP staff. Now, you say we never recovered. Uh, we we recovered. Our our field would not be affected by something that the government did to us. But we we knew that there was a government cover up. We were very well aware of it. And we just fought against it and continued on. But I'm not going to disagree with you. I'm just going to forward uh, my own observation, I guess, and, and you can tell me what you think of this. Um, sure. But it does seem like even though ufology was definitely on the fringe back then, there was still a lot of people from the mainstream who were looking at it. I don't know. It just seemed like it had a different feel than it does now. It feels now like it's almost been marginalized, where back then it was more, uh, it was more of a pressing issue. Well, when McDonald was in the field and NICAP, the, the subject was um, was treated very respectfully, especially when Jim McDonald was in the field for those five years. The media uh, was uh, very, very positive toward the UFO phenomenon. But then uh, when he died and NICAP folded because of a lack of funding or, or other reasons, which I give in the book, yeah. The media did not pay attention to the phenomenon and what the civilian research field were doing to investigate it. Yeah. It went back to um, just a, a total, uh, almost totally ignoring it for a while until the abduction phenomenon uh, burst onto the field. Which is about the late 70s, early 80s. It was uh, 1973. Oh, okay. So you're saying like the Betty Barney Hill stuff. Well, Betty and Barney Hill were a uh, 1965, I believe. Oh, okay, I'm getting my and dates. And even McDonald was interested in the Betty and Barney Hill case because the, the, here were two very, very fine, reliable witnesses, and um, there were a couple of other cases that. Uh, well, Betty and Barney Hill was the one he was most interested in, but he never formed any conclusion about whether or not they were actually abducted. Yeah. Because there was no proof. No scientific proof. I guess just to uh, throw in a little more onto what you just said, 
and, and to tie it into what we've been talking about, it seems like ufology then, if uh, the media started paying attention to the to the abduction phenomenon, and as we've said, the ETH thing got stuck in with the abduction phenomenon, it definitely does sound like ufology went in a whole different direction after that. Well, when you say ETH uh, uh, hypothesis, that that has always been part of the of the scientifically oriented UFO phenomenon, but it was the abduction cases that that overwhelmed us starting in 1973. Yeah. For which there is no explanation, except I speculate in the book that possibly this interdimensional phenomenon, which uh, is. Well, I, I, yes, and also in how to defend yourself against alien abduction, I go into that. Yeah. That this is what has destroyed the reliability of the field uh, to a great extent with the public and, and with science, with the scientific community at large. Uh, the abduction scenarios, the, these stories, uh, these, these are uh, completely different from what we call the ETH. Because even McDonald felt that um, he had a very mild hypothesis that these flying unidentified craft were possibly from extraterrestrial sources. You say that uh, you guys really got overwhelmed with abduction cases and uh, sort of picked up in 73-ish. Had McDonald lived, do you think he would have gone into that avenue of, of research or do you think he would have stayed with the scientific UFO straight up, you know, UFO in the sky and potential landing type situations, but stayed away from abductions. I mean, this well, is a I'm sure he question, would have been but... interested in, in the, uh, the, the swarm of uh, abduction cases that came. He would have uh, wondered why they, why they uh, were happening. He would have wondered which were true and which might not be true. But he would have stuck, I believe, with the search for scientific data that these extraterrestrial craft are flying around our atmosphere. And uh, his idea, which I present in the book, is that this w was always his uh, primary concern. It would have continued to be his primary concern because uh, when you have scientific proof of something, that is when the scientific community will give attention to it. Mm -hmm. But uh, there is no scientific proof of abductions, you see. Yeah. And then you, you've kind of talked about the folding of NICAP and stuff. And uh, in the same vein as some of the other questions we've had here throughout our interview, as you said, you were part of the NICAP subcommittee there in Southern California. What was going on with you guys when all this stuff was going on in Washington? What were you thinking? Uh, had this been something that you thought was brewing for a while, or did it come as a total surprise? What was the reaction to the folding of NICAP or the takeover of NICAP? Because as you said, Idabel sort of uh, left the NICAP situation once it became apparent that things were degenerating pretty fast. But uh, what, what were the thoughts and, 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 and actions of, of all you guys who were part of the NICAP group in Southern California when all this turmoil started happening in D.C.? Well, uh, the, the NICAP subcommittee uh, folded, of course, when when NICAP folded. I be, believe by 1971 uh, it was all over when, when McDonald died. But uh, we, we went into MUFON and became the, the MUFON subcommittee out here. Mm -hmm. uh, we did not change 
our, our uh, intensity uh, of research. But uh, I, I stuck with NICAP until 1975 because I was not convinced uh, of uh, what um, Ida Bell was saying. Hers was a very tentative theory. She did not make that uh, public. But it was only uh, years later, and this is discussed in the book, that um, a very fine researcher uh, did prove that uh, some of the people on the board of NICAP were responsible for the disintegration of NICAP. And then he, he was able to prove that they were um, CIA, related to CIA and um, FBI. Yeah. And uh, we did not know this at the time, that they were on the board. But there were suspicions, I guess, from what you were saying about Idabel and stuff like that? Well, there was suspicion. Her suspicion was uh, completely intuitive. She was a rather intuitive person, although she never claimed to be. And it was it was something intuitive that told her something is wrong here. Uh, NICAP wouldn't have folded like that. Uh, why did these uh, two, three members of the board the executive uh, committee, they called them, uh, out of a board of 12 members, why did they uh, lock out Kehoe from his office abruptly? Why did they take the files and lock them up from uh, from uh, Gordon Lohr and from Kehoe and from anybody else that was in, in NICAP, you see? Yeah. It, it was her intuition, and she was right. Uh, you sort of touch on this in the book, but let's talk a little bit here about what McDonald's take on the whole thing was and, you know, his reaction to it. Because he was pretty tight with NICAP, like you said, and he was uh, really good friends with Dick Hall. And, uh, you know, obviously he knew Kehoe and was friends with him and stuff. And, and I'm sure that this was, uh, you know, perplexing and sort of uh, disappointing to him to see what happened to NICAP. But what, what, from what you got from the journals and stuff and maybe from any interaction or, or, you know, conversations you might have had with him or, or secondhand through people, what, what did he think of the whole thing? Well, you see, I, I never conversed directly with McDonald. I was in total awe of him, <laughs> and I was just about the youngest member of the subcommittee at that time. So uh, I had just uh, limited correspondence uh, with him on certain cases, and when he would come into town and we would have these big meetings, I would sit there and listen and just be in total awe, but uh, not not contribute anything. <laughs> so, so uh, but MacDonald continued to work with NICAP until his death, uh, especially uh, Stuart Nixon, who took over as uh, as a, a, I think that the highest official at that time. Yeah, uh, he. Um, he took over uh, Kehoe's job, and uh, McDonald uh, tried to work with Stewart, and he never said uh, anything uh, negative about Stuart Nixon. But um, I think that he could see that the good work that NICAP had done, the good objective work that NICAP had done under Kehoe, was not being done anymore because of the NICAP newsletter uh, did not have cases that were thoroughly investigated like like it did when Kehoe was in charge. Yeah. You know, it just had, um, oh, just, you know, uh, paragraphs and uh, small articles about cases that had happened, but uh, no, no true investigation like had been done before. 
Yeah. Now, do we find out uh, anything more about this Stuart Nixon character? Because he certainly comes off as kind of Weasley in, <laughs> in Firestorm and a little suspicious. And it sounded like there was some debate about him uh, within people in ufology about, you know, if, if he was a plant by the government or if he was just just incompetent. So, so what, what, what was, uh, you know, did we ever find out any more about Stuart Nixon? Did he ever say anything else, you know, in these, you know, later years, 30 years on since uh, uh, NICAP folded, nearly 40 now, uh, since NICAP went under it? Have we found out anything more about Stuart Nixon and, and, and uh, you know, what his motivations might have been in taking things so far off course? Uh, I, I have nothing uh, uh, personal to, to add to that because, you see, I continued to work with Stuart Nixon. I would send him cases that I had uh, investigated. I would uh, read the NICAP newsletter just as I had before. I did not um, treat him as someone who was not reliable, Yeah. you see. Uh, I know that other people in the field did. But uh, I um, I never had any personal animosity toward him. Now is he still around, or is he is he passed away, or is he or is he just dropped out of the field, or what's what's the story with him in contemporary times? Well, he dropped out of the field, but um, I I don't know if he's still alive. If he is, I wish him well. And then here we we've kind of covered so many uh, stories and, and 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 avenues of of James McDonald's five critical years in the public eye of ufology. As we said, he did study UFO cases in eight years before he really became a public figure uh, uh, in the UFO field in 66. We're sort of here now coming to the unfortunate series of events that led to his demise. There's a few different sort of events that come about that I want to talk to you about uh, that sort of piled on top of each other. And, and the first one is probably the most mysterious one and that is uh, that he had some kind of uh, clandestine meetings with uh, purportedly top officials in the government, and it was all very secretive. And I guess just talk a little bit about that and what we know about it and what you think was going on there. Uh, Dr. Robert Wood, who is a, a just an absolutely marvelous researcher and, and a uh, top figure in the field at this time, he uh, had a stopover in Tucson, and he met with McDonald at the airport, and they had a while to, you know, had drink a cup of coffee and and discuss what was going on in the field. Yeah. And uh, McDonald was uh, quite secretive about this, but he said he just wanted to let Bob know because Bob was a very good friend of his that he was consulting with top officials in the government. And that very, very soon the um, details of the cover-up would be made available to him. In other words, what this, what the government really knew uh, would be given to him by these top officials that he was meeting with that he never named to, to Bob. But that he couldn't talk right now, but that it wouldn't be too long before he, he felt that he could reveal what he knew. And this was just uh, three three months before he died. Yeah. Now, did we find out anything else about that? Is, is that sort of information, do you think, contained in the small notebooks? I believe it's contained in the small notebooks, yes. If he told uh, Robert Wood that he was consulting with top officials in the government and that they were giving him the true information that the government had and that soon he would be able to reveal it publicly, 
I would think that he would have written this down in what we call the the pocket notebooks or the small notebooks. Yeah. Where he kept his uh, classified information. Yeah. we got to find those small notebooks, Anne. We have to find them, yes. I wish I could get to Tucson and uh, scout out two two leads that uh, I have that may possibly yield fruit. Oh, that would be amazing. That would be just amazing to find that information. Now, you speculate that it may have been uh, just an attempt by the government to sort of dangle a carrot in front of McDonald and then pull it back, sort of like as it had done on many occasions uh, with him. Do you think that was the case, or do you think these were genuine uh, top officials in government that were going to try and help him out? I would say it was a carrot dangling in front of McDonald because uh, just, you know, just weeks later, he tried to commit suicide. And then uh, shortly afterward, he succeeded. I don't believe that he committed suicide myself. I give the hypothesis. Yeah, uh, in, yeah. In the book we'll, that, that he was helped along. We'll we'll get into that in a moment. Um, the other uh, the other big event that sort of played a big part, I think, in in uh, his worsening depression, was the congressional hearings on the uh, supersonic planes, the SSTs, and this uh, just vicious. And and kind of uh, just just vicious is probably the only word I can really come up with off the top of my head to describe uh, Representative Conti's attack on McDonald. As I was saying about the book, and this goes hand in hand with uh, McDonald's suicide, early suicide attempt, and then the suicide completion through from April to June, and, and this happened in March was the congressional hearings. But and uh, this is a testament to you as an author. In Firestorm, as I said, the, the, the general text of the book is 525 pages, and, and the, last, the last sort of downhill slide for McDonald is really like the last 30 pages or so, and it just keeps getting sort of worse. And those were the hardest parts to read in the book. And after going 500 pages with this guy through all these different adventures and just really growing to love him as a, as a researcher and, and really sort of cheering him on throughout the 500 pages of the book, when you get to that part of the book, it's so hard to read, and uh, I guess that's just—and I don't mean like in a in a bad way. I mean in an emotional way, and and that's a testament to you as an author because, you know, when I was reading those those last uh, twenty pages or so, you know, I'd have to read maybe two paragraphs, and I'd have to stop for a couple minutes because I was just like, this is too heavy for me to get into because oh. it's no, but I mean that in a good way because that's how emotionally invested I was in. in in McDonald as a researcher and in the book. So, I mean, I think you did an amazing job. We were emotionally uh, devastated, the entire field. But uh, out here, uh, Ida Bill Epperson couldn't believe it. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it for 20 years. I mean, I I knew that he was dead, but I missed him so desperately for 20 years. And I kept praying that he had been taken up to heaven. Uh, I'm a Catholic, you see. Yes. And I never forgot. I never forgot the grief. And it is grief that I felt. And I know that other people like Ida Bell felt grief. But it was only when I had a chance to write the book that the grief dissipated. Yeah. And now I know that, that he's all right and that his work... And and him as a man is now being um, uh, perceived by the public again. Absolutely, yeah. That, that's the only thing that helped me for 20 years. I was um, devastated. 
I can imagine. Yeah, it sounds like it. And uh, just to sort of yeah, we did love him. We we loved him. Oh, I'm sure. It, it, and and the way you guys say that he was like a leader to the field, I can imagine that it was just just a heartbreaking development. And and uh, just sort of to go back to what I had said about reading the book and everything, even after I had finished the that part of the book and the text and everything, and you know, I still sort of leafed through the the uh, the massive appendixes, but there was definitely a sadness there. Uh, that lasted for a couple days just from having read the book. I mean, I wasn't even around back then or anything, but having been so emotionally invested in the book and his life, uh, the conclusion of it is definitely it, it's, uh, it leaves an impact on you, that's for sure. So, I mean, it's a testament to you as an author and, and to the powerfulness of his story that, that it is that way. Yes. Uh, he was not only a, a brilliant, intelligent man and a very helpful man to our field, but he, his personality was so sociable and so humorous. He would make jokes. Uh, he was just absolutely engaging personality, as well as being this in, intensely intelligent person. So uh, I wanted to point that out. Yeah. That that, that, that was part of uh, why we missed him so much. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Let's just jump back and talk about the congressional hearings and, and what Conti did to McDonald, because I think that's important to point out in the context of the interview. We didn't actually touch on it because I jumped ahead to the actual suicide. Just talk a little bit and tell people about those congressional hearings that McDonald was a part of and what, what Representative Conti did in the questioning part that was just so, in my mind, kind of out of line, and then the way he handled it was just over the top and ridiculous, and I'm, I'm, I'm just... Uh, I'm amazed that, that McDonald managed to, to not lose his temper in, in that situation, but uh, uh, enlighten people to what I'm talking about so they can kind of get an idea of what happened. Well, in, in February 71, uh, McDonald wrote to, uh, to the field that he was going to withdraw from the field for a while because he was doing work on the, the so-called effect that he felt that the SSTs that the government was planning to uh, to fund for Boeing would affect the ozone layer of the Earth to an extent that the ozone layer could not repair itself. And uh, because the ozone layer um, helps to ward off radiation from the sun that produces skin cancer and maybe other bad effects, he, he felt that he had to devote his entire time to studying the effects that uh, these planned SSTs would have on the ozone layer. And the SSTs were supersonic transports that Boeing uh, wanted to produce because they would be able to fly above the, um, the natural, uh, a way in, in which our aircraft fly now. The jet planes fly around 37,000. Yeah. But uh, the SSTs would be able to go up much higher and would be uh, more efficient because there would not be the drag on the wings and everything like that. And so, um, but McDonald had studied this and he said that to have, it would be 2,000. SSTs eventually daily going oh, wow. over our country alone, 2,000 uh, aircraft filled with all these people. Um, 
that the uh, the ozone layer would be so disturbed that it would uh, cause a great amount of skin cancer in our country and of course in other nations so he um when they when they had the hearing they had a hearing uh a governmental uh congressional hearing on the SSTs and how uh Boeing was um wanted funding from the government and the government was planning the funding the hearing was whether or not this should be done and uh, there were 30 people who gave testimony including McDonald about this and uh, many 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 uh, agreed with McDonald's uh, that uh, it would be devastating to have all of these aircraft flying so high above our skies and um, I think McDonald probably was the most influential one in convincing the congressional hearing that uh, the SSTs would cause irreparable harm to our ozone layer so that it could not ever repair itself. Yeah. And then uh, after he had given his testimony in the midst of it, this congressman called Leon Conti began to attack him. And uh, he, uh, uh, he attacking first the testimony that McDonald was saying about the ozone and then Conti switched. You, you call him vicious. Yes, he was, he was vicious. He, he, uh, twisted McDonald's words and he referred to McDonald's intense investigation in the UFO question. And he, he made very slighting remarks, uh, remarks that were very, <laughs> I, I don't know uh, how to describe it. Yeah, it's difficult to even. Yeah, it's, it's it's difficult even to describe how how McDonald he answered every uh, attack. It was an attack by Leon Conti that here was a man who was um, saying that uh, the the ozone layer would be irreparably harmed. And this was a man who, who thought that little green men were flying around in flying saucers. And he put the two things together, and uh, the people in the hearing laughed. They, they took it as a joke. And uh, MacDonald was never laughed at. He had never been laughed at during any of his work. Uh, he couldn't understand why, why Leon Conti was doing this. He gave him answers, but uh, Leon Conti would not accept the answers about, um, you know, about uh, his McDonald's work in UFO research having nothing to do with his work on the ozone layer. The two things were not related in any way, but Conti uh, would not accept this. And then another congressman on the panel joined with Conti. Uh, giving uh, insults, insulting remarks to McDonald. Yeah, it's just a painful part of the book. Uh, yes. To experience, because you, like I said, you 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 go through the whole uh, experience with McDonald, and and just like I said, it's just painful. You can only imagine the turmoil and and, and the hurt that he must have been going through when that was going on. Because uh, from a third person perspective, it's just painful to go through. So. Just uh, from his point of view, it's it's painful. Well, by this time, 
uh, he had things that were happening in his life that were causing him depression. He, he fought the depression, and he didn't show it to anyone. But to have Conti attack him like that uh, in a congressional hearing and, and to tell the public this man is not a reliable scientist, this added to his depression. And uh, I, I discuss in the book how certain UFO researchers that we know uh, met him in the cafeteria of Congress afterwards and saw how totally depressed he was. But he pulled himself up, you see. Yeah. And, and a couple of weeks later, he was able to convince the scientific community at large that his testimony on the ozone uh, layer was entirely reliable. And then Congress decided that the SSTs should never be built. Yeah. So he was right all along in the, yes. you know. So we kind of talked about the fallout of the suicide attempt. I did just want to ask you. You sort of put forth the idea that he was helped along the way, perhaps by government intervention. I guess just talk a little bit about that, and, and you think that that was the case, or, or uh, you just sort of put that out as a possibility. But it, it sounded like from what you said that his family really doesn't think that might be the case, but maybe you might know more than I do about that. So uh, what, what are your thoughts on the whole suicide, and, and what, what really motivated that? Well, you see, um, Betsy McDonald and I worked closely together on this book, and she and me uh, the members of her family were convinced that the first suicide attempt by McDonald and then the later one in which he actually died were caused by family problems. And uh, Betsy explained that McDonald spent so much time on UFO research you see, in his spare time, but he was gone from home so so much that she missed him desperately and became attracted to another. Uh, I'm not going to call him a gentleman. Another <laughs> man. Yes. Uh, in uh, in an organization she was involved in, and uh, they became, you know, um, how would you call it? Intimate. Yes. Yes, and uh, McDonald learned of this, you see. Yeah. And uh, he he did everything he could to get back her trust, to work this out, because he loved Betsy so deeply, and she loved him too. So she she felt that the depression he felt about uh, the uh, potential breakup of their marriage was what caused his final depression that led to his death. Yeah. They had agreed that they would stay together in the same home until their children were all out of college, you see. Mm -hmm. But uh, th that she would continue with this other man uh, in a romantic uh, relationship. Yeah. And uh, he, he fought. He, he did everything he could. Yeah, it just sounds like her back, uh, but but was not not successful. Yeah, yeah, it just sounds like an, a, a series of events here that just piled up on him. Uh, yeah, yes. And, now, and now that that's her that, that is her feeling and the feeling of the family, and I respect it. I respect it highly. Yeah. But as a UFO researcher, I have information about certain things that happened to him 
that indicate that he was being followed. You see mm-hmm. uh, that that the government was doing things like like you say, dangling carrots before him and then bringing them back. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, depression he felt over Leon Con. Uh, uh, Leon Conti in the hearing, although he seemed to get over that. It is my firm hypothesis that he was helped along in his depression. And even if he did commit the final act himself, it was caused by the um, certain officials in the government causing the depression that led to his death. Yeah. I'm going to presume that the death of McDonald had a chilling effect also on on the field because it kind of it sounded like we know more about his death now but at the time with the lack of uh fast communication and and that sort of thing that we have nowadays and the way the ufo field is that that it was probably subject to a lot of speculation and that kind of thing where a lot of people sort of uh frightened i guess you could say by his death in the sense that you know they were like this is getting dangerous well we never felt that way here of course, <laughs> nobody was uh, was like McDonald. You see, yeah. And uh, and if the government uh, officials or a part of the government did bring about his depression, it was because he was being so very influential in bringing about full disclosure uh, of of what the government knew about uh, the UFO phenomenon. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, just a just a sad. Sad turn of events. It's uh, like you said, it, there hasn't been another McDonald since, and, and and you know the ufology field desperately needs an, a new James McDonald to come along and then start to close that gulf between science and, and civilian ufology. Well, I think that's where the fear might be among other scientists who might have the uh, ability that McDonald had, although I don't know who they would be. Yeah. That that if they tried to do the same thing McDonald did. Uh, they too uh, might be attacked by um, government sources. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I think that wraps up the uh, the firestorm conversation. I did uh, want to ask just about one overarching theme of the book that almost sounds kind of quaint here now in 2009, and that was the cover-up versus follow-up debate that was going on in ufology during the James McDonald years. Um, I guess just just talk a little bit about that. It seems kind of quaint now. Do you think that that debate's pretty much been settled with uh, with the whole Freedom of Information Act and how we've gotten more information about what was going on back then? Yes, you see, the Freedom of Information Act was not in effect when McDonald uh, was with us, and uh, th- there was no real release of uh, formerly classified UFO documents like there is now. Yeah, and so the the foul up. Uh, we we know it's not a foul up, but yeah. McDonald, you see, if he were alive now, he would he would have changed his mind and know that it was a true cover up, uh, not not a speculated foul up. Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of the that's what I was referring to earlier when I said uh, how much the field has changed in the last uh, forty fifty years, even though. We still don't know what UFOs are. Back then, there was the big debate about cover-up versus follow-up, and it sounds like that was a pretty, you know, rigorously debated topic in, in ufology at the time. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't rigorously debated in ufology. This was McDonald's own idea that that um, he, he knew that there were local cover-ups 
on military bases. He, he knew this cover-up of UFO information by the government, but he felt that these were just, um, it was not a general cover-up, you see. He could not accept the fact of a general cover-up by the government because he had no scientific proof, yeah. you see. Now we have the scientific proof. But uh, and and so he thought, well, uh, maybe it was just a grand foul up by the government. Uh, okay, so what? What if it wasn't the debate in ufology? Was the general consensus in ufology for cover up or for foul up? Uh, the general consensus in uh, the part of the field I was in was was a cover up. Okay, definitely. There are some people uh, who sort of comprise the third camp of this debate, uh, and, and it may fall under cover up, I guess. But we'll, I want to get your thoughts on it, really. And that's that the government doesn't know nearly as much as we think, that, that ufology knows as much as the government, or if not more, in some respects. I'm not saying all respects. Obviously, they have access to radar and all kinds of uh, high-technology equipment. That they're on the same page almost as ufology, I guess. So what do, what do you think of that point of view, or do you think the government knows much, much more than, than we think? Uh, I believe that the government might have certain scientific proof that there are unidentified aircraft zooming around our skies. Uh, I think they have more scientific proof than we do. We have empirical evidence, you see. Yeah. Or, or a little bit of scientific proof. But the thing is, I, I do not think that the government knows precisely what these things are, where they are from, uh, how many sources there might be, or if it's just from one source. The government does not know the purpose of of the uh, surveillance by these unidentified aircraft. I believe that I I mean it's generally known that they are getting some kind of technological information from the information they have. But I believe that the government, our government, does not want to release this because they are afraid that other nations, especially enemy nations, will get hold of that technology and develop uh, things uh, that uh, by which they, they can smash us. Yeah. Well, some people think and hope that if the economy keeps tanking, that maybe one of these advanced technologies will be accidentally discovered. I use that in quotes, of course. Interesting. To sort of, you know, jumpstart the economy if they all of a sudden found a free energy device or something, you know. Uh, yes, but, there, there apparently is a free energy device that these things use. Yeah, yeah. So if, if the government's sitting on it, maybe if the economy keeps going down and they need something quick to turn it around, if all of a sudden they discovered it and, and got it out and we're putting it, you know, all this, you need factories and all that great stuff here in America to build those things. So that'd be wonderful. The hope of the some factories people. here and the jobs here. Absolutely. Export them to China. All right, now this is the final uh, question here, and that's just the sort of big-picture analysis. Your thoughts on uh, the evolution of the field of ufology since 1971. We've kind of talked about that uh, in, the, in the effect that, you know, it got overwhelmed with abductions. It seems like abductions sort of went to the back burner or became, uh, I guess, let's just say abduction became part of the fabric of ufology, you know, beginning then and, and has sort of, faded more and more as time's gone on. I mean, abductions aren't nearly as big as they were in the 70s and 80s. Now they're just a part of ufology that, that is accepted as sort of a peripheral aspect of the field. 
and ufology. I'm not really sure where it's at nowadays. You know what what it's really doing aside from the old school classic style of ufology that's still going on, and then this uh, exopolitical kind of almost NICAP esque, but on a different level and in different means and stuff like that uh, movement to push the government for answers. And I just want to know what you think of how the field has evolved since 71, since since the abduction boom, you know, in the last 20 years or so. As I said, you've, you've been in the field for 50 years. You have a better, you have an amazing front row seat to the, the changes that have gone on in this field. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating an interesting answer. I'm, I'm looking forward to hear what you think of where this whole uh, scene has gone since 71, since McDonald died, and, you know, in the last 30, 40 years. Well, when McDonald was with us, we felt that the field was evolving, that, that we were getting close to convincing the scientific community at large that the UFO phenomenon was a serious scientific question that was being badly neglected. So when McDonald died and the abduction phenomenon started to swarm into the field, and I mean swarm actually take over for for years, for at least 10 years, Mm -hmm. the field, in my estimation, sank. There was no evolution at all. It was not scientifically oriented at all, like like it was when uh, McDonald was with us, and even before McDonald was with us. You see, the public at large, I believe, thinks that abductions are part of the UFO phenomenon and that even though we don't know where these uh, uh, creatures are from, they are abducting human beings for their own, for their own purposes. Uh, now, I that's why I wrote How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction, to uh, try to convince the field that it was uh, very possibly wrong to include abductions as a part of the scientifically oriented UFO research field. Yeah. And uh, slowly, I am making some progress. Uh, there, there are uh, top researchers like Don Worley and others who are now working with resistors and who accept that possibly uh, the abduction phenomenon is a separate phenomenon from the physical UFO phenomenon. Okay. What about in, you know, since abductions have sort of uh, become passe, for lack of a better term, and we kind of went through the Roswellification of uh, ufology in the 80s and the 90s and stuff like that, and then, you know, the X-Files period, and now we're, as I said, we're in the exopolitics field. Do you think that the field's going in the right direction, or do you think that, you know, we're, we're looking in the wrong places, we're doing the wrong things? I guess the gist of the question is where do you... Where do you think the field needs to go from here? What do we need to do, Em? I am very impressed by UFO Hunters, this one that started last year with Bill Burns and a team of scientifically oriented UFO researchers who take the very top cases that have occurred over the years and they do extra scientific work with scientists. Uh, like uh, in uh, some of the landing trace cases, they have the scientists actually uh, do uh, do more work than has ever been done on trying to figure out how the uh, landing traces have affected the soil and the vegetation around them. Uh, so I think that if UFO hunters continues so objective 
that this will be a big boon to the field and to the public at large. Okay. Because they do not address uh, the subject of abductions at all. Yeah. And one of the things that I've really been pushing for in the last few months, and, and uh, my conversation with Stan last month sort of reignited this idea in my head, and I kind of just want to get your thoughts on it, and that's just that I feel like the UFO field needs uh, a sea change in public opinion. We need some better public relations in a way. We need to shape the way the average people think about UFOs, kind of like how you said that the uh, abductions are now synonymous with UFOs when that's not the case uh, in a lot of people's minds and that we don't know that at all, which is the, the point, I guess, is the what I'm trying to make is that we need to sort of re-educate the public to what we do know, which is surprisingly little other than that UFOs are real, whatever they are, we don't know, and sort of reshape the public awareness of what of what ufology is and what the UFO phenomenon is after years and years of the public being shaped by the mainstream media. Well, it's uh, it's hard to shape <laughs> <laughs> the opinion of the uh, of the public. Oh, it's no small task. I know that, but no. I mean, it's a. Uh, I I don't know how this could be done except uh, possibly by uh, by uh, shows like UFO Hunters, uh, other other very objective TV shows showing uh, the scientific evidence. Uh, of the physical UFO phenomenon, okay? And also, that's partly why I wrote Firestorm, uh, and I wanted to give the whole title, Firestorm, Dr. James E. MacDonald's Fight for UFO Science. Yeah. Uh, if if books, more books like that could be written and get given out to the general public, this would be a, a huge boost to... Uh, to um, informing the public what's really going on. Yeah. The books like this would have to be published by New York publishers, you see, Random House and, yeah. and things like that, and, and get out into millions, uh, be sold in the millions, and the, the media people would would have to have the authors on so that millions of people each week could, could uh, hear an objective viewpoint of what UFO phenomenon might be or what we know about them. But I think that's the, one of the big problems of ufology today is is that it just, just it gets a bad rap from the mainstream. Yes, and it's unfunded. Uh, I, I would like your public to know that researchers like myself do not work for any fee, <laughs> no salary. We uh, All of our uh, costs come out of our own pockets. Absolutely, yeah. I'm in the same boat. I'm in the same boat. All the all the costs for this program are paid for by me, so mm-hmm. we're doing yeoman's work here, I think, but someday it will be proven. I guess uh, the final question is, you've been doing this for like 50 years. Do you ever get frustrated just that you've been in this for so long and the answer didn't come? I mean, we talked about how, how James McDonald thought he would be able to convince the scientific community after one summer. You know, you've been doing this for 50 summers. And we ha- we haven't plus the fifty falls, winters, and springs, and, and we still haven't gotten an answer. And you've seen a lot of your colleagues and friends, you know, pass on to that next realm without ever finding an answer. So do do you get frustrated or worried that your answer may come in a better place when you get there? No, I don't get frustrated or worried. Uh, I I don't have fear at all. The 
the thing is that uh, I, I do feel that researchers like myself have been given this this work uh, by, by God to do. And uh, if, uh, if it's not answered, that's all right. Uh, it's still being given to us about, uh, as work by God. Uh, I hate to sound religious like this, but uh, that that's why uh, p- people like myself go on and on and on because we feel that it is that is the work that that has been given to us uh, for for part of our life work. Okay, we've talked for uh, just a mammoth amount of time. Folks can pick up Firestorm through Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Go to your bookstore and ask for them to order it for you, and they'll get it for you. It is an amazing book, as I said, folks. It really uh, has just reshaped the way I look at the UFO phenomenon, especially UFO history. A lot of people who heard uh, the Jacques Vallée interview this past uh, summer really heard me gush about how much he really reshaped my thoughts on the UFO phenomenon. And I have to say that Firestorm reshaped my thoughts on UFO history, and uh, it's definitely going to change the course of this program as we go on. And uh, I can't put it over enough. So folks definitely want to pick up Firestorm, Dr. James E. McDonald's Fight for UFO Science, in addition to that, the Tahunga Canyon contacts that we talked about earlier in the program. Uh, you kind of teased a little bit about what you've got going on in the future, but let people know what uh, they can expect coming up from Ann Druffle in the future, Ann. I have been uh, convinced by my friend uh, Dr. Bert Schwarz that I should write my memoirs uh, as to uh, uh, the research that I have done in various fields, including the UFO phenomenon. And so that possibly will be the next book I write. Okay. No estimated time of arrival on that one, though. No, I'm afraid not. <laughs> any speaking engagements that we should know about or or uh, plans for any conventions or anything like that you have coming up that you might want to mention? Not right now. Um, your listeners can access my, my website, uh, andruffle.com, because all of the, the things that are coming up, or have been done are, are listed uh, on the... Um, okay, but you still do speaking engagements from time to time, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay, oh, great. Oh, yes, I, I did. I spoke at a conference just a couple of months ago. Oh, awesome. Or maybe even uh, in Ventura, MUFON. Awesome, awesome. Uh, all right, yeah, so yes. folks can check out andruffle.com, A-N-N-D-R-U-F-F-E-L.com. That's the hub of Andruffle information. Definitely want to check that out, folks. Well, Anne, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I'm just completely blown away by Firestorm and the Tahunga Canyon contacts. You've you've taken part in, in, in some ways, a historical interview here on the program, the longest Banal of America audio interview we've ever done. We're clocking in here at over four hours, but with that much material, uh, I, I wanted to do justice to your amazing work by just uh, covering as much as possible, and I just can't thank you enough for giving us so much time. Tahunga Canyon Contacts, a historic book, second E.T. abductions book ever written, and then Firestorm, just an absolute masterpiece. You know, I, I can't put this book over enough. I just loved it. I loved reading it. And as I said, it was just an emotionally powerful book and opened my eyes to so much UFO history and opened my eyes to Ann Drovel and James McDonald. And you've had a front row seat to so many key events and amazing evolutionary trends in the UFO field. And then to write the book on James McDonald, you sort of had to relive it in a way. You got the opportunity to relive it and, and from a center stage point of view and see things from James McDonald's perspective. 
looking at those key years in the UFO field, 66 to 71. I can't thank you enough, Andruffle. I hope we can have you on the program again sometime next year for Season 5. Uh, even though we've done four hours, there's still plenty more to talk about with you, I'm sure, and I really look forward to talking to you again in the future. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you for so long and to listen to so many great stories and to probe the mind of someone who's been in the UFO field for 50-plus years. You know, I'm only 30 years old, turned 30 uh, two days ago, and, and, and you've been doing this for my age almost double. So, I, I mean, I, I'm just amazed at your perseverance in this field. And, and your contributions to the world of UFO studies. So thank you again for coming on the show. It's been just amazing experience having you on the program. Thank you for your interest, Tim. I appreciate it. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 4 and wraps up our first ever mini-series here on the program. I had my doubts on whether or not a mini-series was a good idea, but in retrospect, looking at all the material that we covered here, in these three different episodes. I'm very happy that we did it. I didn't want to overload the audience with so much information, and I really wanted to put this interview on the pedestal that it deserved to be on. Thankfully, I think the miniseries really captured that vibe. To that end, big, big, super huge thanks to Ann Druffel. I really cannot thank her enough for giving us so much time, nearly four hours, spaced out over two days. I mean, that is just amazing patience from her, amazing stamina, her remarkable career, 50 plus years looking at the UFO mystery is beyond reproach, and it was a real thrill for me to have her on the program and to relive so many major events in the history of UFO studies. Once again, the two books we were discussing here during the miniseries you definitely want to pick up and read. They are the Tahunga Canyon Contacts from Anomalous Books and Firestorm, Dr. James E. McDonald's Fight for UFO Science. You can get that at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Definitely want to pick up both those books and read them. They are awesome, awesome investigations into different aspects of the UFO mystery. Of course, you definitely want to stop by Ann's website, www.andruffle.com, A-N-N-D-R-U-F-F-E-L.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And we've got three here in the till, so let's just dive into them. For starters, we're going to put a bow on our exchanges here with Jason, who wrote in on the first part of the miniseries to discuss my Barack Obama gaffe, if you will, from the Year in Review episode, then wrote back the next week to acknowledge that I had read his email at the end, and that's the point where I mentioned that he kept refusing to name his hometown. And here we have his final email of the set for the miniseries where he reveals his hometown. So for those keeping score at home, Jason has appeared on all three parts of the miniseries here in listener feedback. It's sort of been its own little serial storyline ongoing at the end of the program. So let's hear from Jason as the mystery is revealed. To answer your question, I live in Maryville, Missouri. I'm happy we can put this issue to rest and get on to more important topics such as UFOs, Bigfoot, and the fact that I received a government grant to buy a time machine. Nice Kent Brockman reference, by the way. And I, for one, welcome our new insect overlords is one of my favorite Brockman quotes. Signed, Jason, in Maryville, Missouri. P.S. To answer your question, I live in Maryville, Missouri. There you go. The mystery is revealed. Maryville, Missouri is where Jason is hailing from. Now I don't have to say no hometown listed. Big thanks to Jason for listening all the way through the end of the program and playing along with us over the course of the miniseries. 
Up next, this email comes from Mary. No hometown listed. Here's what Mary has to say. I just had to write to you to tell you how much I've enjoyed listening to your show the past few months. Finding it was like discovering a gold mine. I have accomplished a lot of knitting while learning and being entertained. So many of your guests have such valuable insights, and you have a gift for this work. The only disturbing note I've heard is your remark that someday you may give up your show and move on to other things. I guess I can't blame you for wanting to move on, but I hope it's to another program that allows you the unfettered freedom you now enjoy to ask questions that fascinate you and to interview the people that inspire you. In light of my avid addiction to your programming, I have finally made a donation to your site. Keep up the good work, Tim, and know that there are many, many people who really appreciate your excellence in broadcasting. Sincerely, Mary. P.S. I loved the interview with Ann Druffel and am looking forward to the next segment. I appreciate your courteousness towards and respect for the, quote, old-timers, end quote. There you go. That's from Mary, No Hometown Listed. Big thanks, Mary, first for the donation. I really appreciate that. All donations go towards BOA, and they are definitely helping us out here during this difficult financial crunch. Secondly, don't worry, as I said, everyone will be given plenty of heads up in the event that BOA Audio shuts down. I don't anticipate that happening for at least another year and a half. We'll do another sort of state of the program analysis at some point during Season 5 and figure out where BOA Audio is heading, but that's quite a ways off. So no worries, folks. The program isn't going anywhere. We're still going to be rolling out top-notch, underground, esoteric audio week in and week out in the seasonal format as BOA Audio has come to be known. And finally, thanks for the dap on the Ann Druffel interview. I really appreciate that. The feedback has been pouring in over the last two weeks, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the remaining feedback here as we close the book on the miniseries. As you say, courteousness towards and respect for the quote-unquote old-timers. I love the old guard here in the world of ufology, as any longtime listener of the program knows. BOA Audio definitely stands on the shoulders of giants, and I enjoy bringing those giants onto the program to find out more about the road that they laid down for us in the very early days of UFO studies, early ufology, the 60s, 70s or so, the Blue Book era, all that stuff. That just sounds like such a much better time for people who were researching UFOs and to relive that with people who were there at the time can really give us an amazing insight into how this strange little flying saucer field has evolved over the last 50 years. And Andropel is definitely one of those people who's seen it all here in the world of ufology and can provide that remarkable and one-of-a-kind insight. Finally, the third email, nice and short. Here it is, pretty simple. No name listed, no hometown listed, but we'll read it anyway because it's only a sentence. I would like to put a link to your site on my MySpace and add your site to my friends list if possible. That's it. So... Pretty simple. Here's my MySpace for you folks. MySpace.com slash Benal. That's it. MySpace.com slash B-I-N-N-A-L-L. Hook me up. Make me your friend. I'll accept your friend request. I'm not a big MySpace user nor Facebook, but I am on both networks. I like to pop on maybe once a week and accept friend requests and uh, answer any messages I may get on MySpace and Facebook, but I'm not a big Facebooker or MySpacer per se. So the best way to get in touch with me is always through email. 
but I would still love to be your friend on Facebook or MySpace, so definitely check me out on those networks, and uh, we'll add you to the friend list. All right, there you go. Three emails from great BOA Audio listeners, Mary, Jason, and the unknown MySpace listener. Big thanks to all them for writing in. And now we turn it over to you here, the folks who are listening at the end of the program. If you'd like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, there's three ways to do it. Either go to Banal of America, click the contact button, that'll bring you to the email page for me, or simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. And the third method is joining up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. Great community on there, lots of fantastic folks talking about esoteric topics and non-esoteric topics like TV, movies, and sports. We'd love to have you there at the USOE.com. Pop on over, join up, it's free. Talk about the show if you want, talk about the paranormal world, or just talk about the latest movie you saw and how much you loved it or hated it. We'll be there to listen and respond at the USOE. So those are the three methods, contact button, email, and forum. Any of those will put your correspondence into my hands for a future edition of VOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, you know them, you love them. They are the esteemed and infamous VOA staff. Let's roll down the list. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Paul Black, and Lasha Seniuk. Nine tremendous writers who contribute some awesome reading material for Banal of America week in and week out, Monday through Friday at the website. We are not just a podcast, we are an esoteric think tank with the help of the amazing BOA staff. I say it here at the end of the program all the time, but I'll repeat myself once again. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Banal of America, you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. It's the part of the show that I dread. It's the part of the month that I dread, the start of the month. You know what time it is. It's time for me to take off my hat and hold it out and ask for donations to the program. First off, I want to just thank all the great people who have made donations since we returned from hiatus. We have just been awash in donations, large and small, from a lot of great listeners. I want to thank all those folks from the bottom of my heart. You've really helped us gain traction here as 2009 starts. But the war is not over. The fight for financial freedom is never over here on BOA Audio. So I ask the great folks who have some change in their pocket, who are doing all right here during this financial crisis, if you can spare it, please make a donation to Banal of America and BOA Audio and help keep the program up and running. How do you do that? Pretty simple. You go to BOA and you click the PayPal button. It's right there on the front page or on the BOA Audio Archive page. Either one of those buttons takes you to PayPal. That'll walk you through the donation process. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping BOA and BOA Audio freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. Next week on the program, we're going to go in a whole different direction. Our guest is longtime friend of the program, the crackpot historian himself, Adam Go Rightly. He's coming back to BOA Audio to discuss his new book, James Shelby Downard's Mystical War. Just a fascinating piece of work that covers a whole lot of esoterica that very rarely gets discussed. We're going to be talking about the bizarre life and times 
of esoteric researcher James Shelby Downard, as well as a number of his most famous theories and observations. We're going to delve into rumors that Downard may have been a literary hoax created by other esoteric writers, and how Adam went about disproving that theory. We're going to talk about the Fatty Arbuckle scandal of the early 1900s, and how it relates to esoteric symbolism, the infamous King Kill 33 JFK assassination theory, mystical toponymy, ritual magic, the Babylon working group, and the stories of the creation of a homunculus, the revelation of method, synchro mysticism, and a plethora of other heady esoteric topics. This is definitely an interview that sheds light on some of Esoterica's darkest corners with the always entertaining Adam Go Rightly. That's next week on the program. Be there or be square. And on that note, we close the book here on this week's edition of BOA Audio. Once again, big, big thanks to Ann Druffel for taking part in such a monumental BOA Audio interview. And as always, huge thanks to all of the great BOA Audio listeners. You are the fuel that drives this machine. Until next time, thanking you for listening and signing off.